You know, it's hard to believe that uh, that it's about to get warm again. Um, bonfires are this Friday. Those are always fun. Uh, make sure you gather around. You know, it, it's interesting because Tuesday, or I'm sorry, Friday night, uh, Friday day, the weather was absolutely miserable. It was cold. It was chilly. And I guess we're turning on our air conditioner tomorrow because uh, it's supposed to be 87 and humid. So go figure. This is uh, kind of weird weather that, that May always is. And I don't know about you, but uh, Mother's Day kind of snuck up on all of us this year. Um, my daughter, who is at home sick right now, uh, called me uh, last, late last weekend in a absolute uh, error saying, wait, I thought Mother's Day was the next weekend. You mean it's this weekend? And, um, and so I know it caught us a little, feels a little early, and hopefully it doesn't, didn't feel early for, for all the moms in the room too. But I just wanted to take a moment to wish all the moms a happy Mother's Day. All the, uh, and, and you know, what I've learned over the years is being a mom doesn't always mean that you gave birth to a child. There are a lot of mothers in this room who, Never, or I don't know about in this room, but there's a lot of women who've never been a uh, physical mom, but have been a mom to people uh, in many, in so many other ways. And so I just want to take a moment right now, and I want to bless the moms in the room, and bless the ladies in the room. So uh, if you're near one, um, if you're near your mom, um, shoot an arm towards them, lean on them. If you're near a lady in the room, just shoot an arm towards them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the mothers in this room. We thank you for the women in this church, Lord. Lord, we thank you just for all the things that you've done. Lord, I know that, that in good times and bad times, in blessings and in struggles, Lord, you have been with them. Lord, your presence is always with them. So, Father, I just pray today, Lord, just bless the women in this room, bless the mothers. Lord, let your presence be with them, not only today, uh, but through the entire year. Lord, I just um, thank you. Thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you uh, for their passion. And I thank you, Lord, uh, that you've blessed us. So, Father, bless them today. Be with them. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, you know, keeping in line with Mother's Day, we're going to go through Revelations today. There's nothing that says Happy Mother's Day like Revelations. So. Um, last week, uh, we started this little short series. We're looking through the, the letters from Jesus to the seven cities in, in Revelations. Uh, last week, we looked at the first two. Uh, Ephesus, a city that was incredibly strong in doctrine, but absolutely forgot about their first love. They were so focused on what was right and what was wrong, that they completely missed Jesus in the midst of it all. And then we looked at Smyrna, this, this small but incredibly faithful city um, that was about to enter a tremendous season of persecution. And, and it was interesting. We had two churches, one large, one prosperous, one successful on the outside, the other small and going through tribulation and trials. Yet, that was the one that tended to be more favored by Jesus. And that was because they still they had a passion for their first love. And that was the call to Jesus to us. 
to have this passion for our first love, to remember that it's all about Him first and foremost, as far as the church, as far as our individual lives. Now today we're going to look at two more cities whose names I guarantee you I will slaughter, so forgive me in advance. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Pergamon, Pergamon, and uh, Thyatira. Um, now last week, we, we somewhat discounted doctrine as we were looking at Ephesus. Uh, we had this idea that, that our passion for Christ was more important than what our doctrine was. Uh, but what we're going to see today is that uh, within these two cities, that our love for Christ will actually move us towards good doctrine, will move us towards a healthy belief. And we need to be careful on what we allow to influence the church as well as what we allow to influence us. So if you have a Bible, we are in Revelations chapter 2, starting in verse 12. We'll read. To the angel of the church in uh, Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those, or those who hold to the teaching of uh, the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just invite your presence here with us today. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Lord, just speak to us this morning as we dig into your word. Lord, remove any distractions that we may have, but Lord, allow us to hear clearly from you. Let your word come. Let it transform us. Let it affect us. Let it change us. Thank you. Let your presence be with us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Pergamon, the city that Satan lives that I can't pronounce. Uh, if you look on the map, it's on the north. Uh, we're, we're in Turkey, if you remember. All these cities were kind of jammed together. It's, it's to the north. And uh, this was an interesting city. Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a very religious city where several major temples uh, were present. The Temple of Zeus, the Temple uh, of Athena was there. It was the center of Caesar worship. Uh, emperor worship in that part of the world. Uh, there's actually a story that the, the temple for Zeus was up on top of a cliff and the porch of it was in such a way that it looked like a throne when the sun hit it a certain way. And that's kind of the imagery that, that John is painting here. The throne, the place where Satan lives, the place where Satan sits. Now try imagine living in a place that is the center for pagan worship, that is the center uh, for everything that is against Christianity. 
I mean, Jesus paints this interesting picture in his letter when he says, Satan lives there, but they live there too. They're committed to that place as well. But because of all that's going on, because of all of that, that, that pagan worship that's going on, because of all of that emperor worship that's going on, it could dramatically affect the life of the follower of Jesus. It could dramatically affect the life of, of people who live there. See, we have this picture in our society of this separation of church and state, that these are two separate things. We compartmentalize them. We have our, our Sunday life, and then we have our, our day-to-day life. But in the ancient Near East, uh, these two were combined. In the Roman Empire, these two were combined. The picture was that Caesar was, was God. Caesar was called the Son of God. Sound familiar? The, the, the phrase that they were required to say was Caesar is Lord. That was the picture. But for a Christian, a Christian could not say that statement. They couldn't say Caesar was Lord because they knew who Lord was. Their Lord was Jesus. They could not say that Satan was the Son of God because they knew who the Son of God was. That was Jesus. But because of all of this, this, this emperor worship, because of this worship of Caesar... It affected every aspect of their lives. When business was done, it was done usually uh, in one way or another in honor of a pagan uh, deity. To accomplish uh, business, you would go to a feast of one way or another, and there would be worship of a pagan deity in honor of whatever business they were about to do. And so if you stepped up and said, you know what, I don't believe in that, I'm not going to do that, You'd be shunned out of your community. You could lose your job. You could lose your business. You'd be traded as an outcast. So the amount of pressure on them to conform to the ways of their society, just to accomplish whatever it is they needed to do, was tremendous. But Jesus has this interesting description of who he is in verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Paul tells us in in Timothy, what is the word of God? It's a sharp, double-edged sword able to cut through following marrow. Jesus is painting this protection, this picture, uh, as the one who can protect them, no matter what the issues are, no matter what uh, the the problems amongst them. And why do they need protection? Because they don't live in a place where Satan has a foothold. They don't live in a place where where, where Satan, you know, just has some strongholds or whatever. They live in the place where Satan's throne is located, where Satan dwells. This is a strong area of pagan worship. This could also be a description of of Zeus's temple. But, But whatever it is, it gives you the sense that they're living in the midst of it. And verse 13 gives us an incredible picture of their faith, of their passion. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. We don't know much about Antipas other than he was put to death for his faith. Jesus seems to be commending them, yet there's still an issue. And that issue is Balaam. Now, that that name may ring a bell in your ear. 
and that it is because it's a story from the Old Testament. It's a story out of Numbers. Balaam is, is in Numbers, chapter 22 through 25. Um, maybe you've heard this story. Uh, the Israelites are coming to the border of Midian. The Midianite king uh, wants to stop them. And so he has this great idea. There's this prophet by the name of Balaam. He's a prophet of God. He decides, if I call him over, he'll stand on a cliff, and if he curses the Israelites, then we'll be able to eat. Balaam looks at the, at the king and says, I can only do what God tells me to do. And he calls him numerous times, and every time that Balaam comes, he ends up blessing the Israelites. Instead of cursing them. This is also the story about how Balaam's riding a donkey to go curse the Israelites. And the angel of the Lord comes and tries to block him and kill him, but the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and jams uh, Balaam into a, a cliff. And Balaam gets mad and starts beating his donkey, and his donkey tells him, what are you doing? And Balaam, instead of saying, wow, my donkey is speaking, yells at his donkey for hurting him. The donkey says, can't you see the angel of the Lord? I'm trying to protect you. Proving once again that God can even use you. Donkey, preach his word. Those are the stories we know. Some of those stories we heard when we were in Sunday school or we've heard one way or another. But there's an interesting part to that story that we kind of missed. And it's at the end of Numbers 31. Balaam tells uh, the king that there's a way that he can't curse them, but there's a way that they can put a stumbling block for Israel. And that's basically uh, to, to intermarry with them. Intermarry with them. Bring your customs into their world. And it ends up becoming a curse for Israel. There's a plague that happens because of it. Over 24,000 Israelites die because of it. And it was just simple. Bring your lifestyle to them. Intermarry with them. Accept their practices. Or have them accept your practices. And it will take them off path. And here's the thing. The same temptation that, that Balaam brought to the Israelites there for the church for Adam. Remember how much temple practices influenced their life and how not participating them could cause them great economic or even physical discomfort and harm. The Nicoletians uh, taught that, that people were still allowed to eat food dedicated to idols. I mean, idols are just a piece of wood. They don't exist. They're not real. What's the big deal? But the apostles outlawed all of that in Acts 15.29. Remember your first Corinthians. Shall I sin more so that grace abounds? No. But you can hear what's being said. What's the big deal? What's the big deal in participating in all this stuff? I'm sure Jesus wants you to get ahead. I'm sure Jesus wants you to be successful, to be fully blessed. So what if you have to cut a couple corners? What's the big deal? And that's the warning that Jesus brings in verse 16. The sword that was, that, that's used to protect them can be turned against them. That's what happened to the Israelites. Numbers. The sword that protected them turned against them. And they turned away from God. And they accepted the practices of the nations. 
Jesus said, but if you repent, if you repent, what you lose, what you think you will lose, which is provision, Jesus says, I'll give to you an abundance. Now those issues weren't just centralized to that city only. They were in the next city as well. Revelations 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyresia, right? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and into the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling so I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her way. I will strike her children dead Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyresia, to you who do not hold her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have. To the one who is victorious and does my will, to the end I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as have I received authority from my Father, I will also give that one, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to Irisha, go ahead and pull that map back up. I love showing it on the map because it gives this a sense of reality. This place has actually existed. This was just to the south of uh, Pergamos. And, and what's interesting about this is this was a major economic city. It was located on a major trade route. So commerce is flowing in and out and in and out of the city. And the city was controlled by trade guilds. What we would know today as unions. To do business, you needed to be a part of one of those guilds. And to be a part of one of those guilds meant you joined in the local festivals that paid homage to pagan gods, to Apollo, to Artemis. And it always amazes me that they always end up in the same thing. To pay homage to them meant that not just you were eating food dedicated to, to those gods, but there was also a form of sexual immorality involved. This is what life is like in the city. And this is where the church is located. And Jesus says in 18, He has eyes that can see deep, uh, piercing, consuming, looking into the heart, looking into what is going on. But the good news for them is they seem to be doing better now than they were. But there are still issues in the church. But these issues are very different than the previous City. In the previous city, the church there had issues of, of coming in from the outside. There were challenges from their society coming in from the outside. But the issues are in this church are opposite. The issues are from the inside. Now, I just I need to put a sidebar here. Because whenever we see the word Jezebel, that's a loaded word. And especially 
uh, in the Pentecostal world, Jezebel just has this interesting meaning. I've seen so many women who, who tend to be maybe outspoken, who tend to have more stronger personalities, be labeled a Jezebel. That's like the ultimate curse that you can put on a woman in the church. And I've had women come up to me completely broken because someone who they didn't agree with, usually a man, let me rephrase that, a man who didn't like them, usually labeled them of that as a way to just delegitimize them, just dehumanize them. There is such a thing as a Jezebelian spirit. This is not the sermon to get into that, but it's thrown around in the church in such a reckless manner. And it's caused tremendous wounding in the process. This story is a little different. So you all know who Jezebel is? You see Jezebel in, in the book of Kings, book of Chronicles. She was King Ahab's wife, Ahab being the king of Israel. Jezebel was, was a foreigner who Ahab married, and she brought in uh, worship of Baal. She persecuted prophets. If you remember the story of Elijah, Jezebel who's going after Elijah continually. Elijah always seems to be running from her. The great story of Elijah uh, versus the prophets of Baal where they're both on two separate mountains and, and they both put sacrifices up. And, and Elijah says, if your God is real, just pray and fire will come down from heaven and it'll take care of it. And they do it all day long and Elijah kind of mocks them in a wonderful way. And then Elijah says, okay, my turn. And he soaks the wood and he soaks everything with water. And then he says something to the effect of come Holy Spirit. Fire comes down from heaven and burns up the offering. and All the prophets of all get slaughtered. And then Jezebel tries to kill Elijah. This is the picture that's being painted. Jezebel had incredible influence on the king of Israel, so much so that she brought worship of Baal into Israel. Changed the whole trajectory of the nation. So the warning here is that there is a woman leader in the church who has tremendous influence, who has tremendous authority. And she's allowing pagan practices to come into the church. This isn't about being influenced from the outside. This is about being influenced from the inside. I fully believe this is not a word against any form of female leadership. This is more of a warning to all leaders about being careful about what you're bringing inside the church. Notice the warning. Uh, the leader is coming to judgment. Judgment is coming to them. Or time for repentance has passed. The people are being called to repentance. But the leader is too late. And that's the burden of leadership. I know, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And there's a burden doing this because I realize that what comes out of my mouth affects a lot of people. And side conversations and side thoughts and loose ideas can dramatically affect another person's life. And at one sometime I will be held accountable for all of that. And that is all. 
That causes a sense of awe and a sense of tremendous fear. It's a warning in the Bible that not all, not everyone should try to strive for leadership because of the weight of that burden. And so I can tell you that these things are incredibly important to me, so much so that I want to make sure that what I'm teaching you guys isn't just like pop theology. It actually has some meat to it, some weight to it. The warning for both of these letters, it's the same. It's a warning about how the influence of the world can transform the local church. How the influence of the world can change what we believe and change what we look like. I know what tickles your ears. I mean, the last two years, I knew exactly what I would have to say if I wanted to fill this church with brim. It was really easy. The, the, the map was there. Masks are evil. Trump is good. We'll pack we'll increase our offerings. We'll be rich. But what's our first thought? Remember from last week? I think there's a warning that's urgent for us today. That's urgent for me as a leader, but it's urgent for us followers of Jesus. See, the call that Jesus was making to the two churches was simple. He was warning them not to participate in pagan practices. Don't participate in the ways of the world. You know, keep away from idol worship. Keep away from sin. And we hear that today and we go, well, we don't worship idols. Well, we can have it. What's interesting is this is a call to the church, not a call to the world. This isn't Jesus saying, you need to go out and make sure nobody in your city is worshiping Zeus. Nobody in your city is worshiping Apollos. Nobody is doing... He doesn't say that. He's saying, you need to make sure you're not doing that. There's almost an acceptance that the world is, is completely collapsed and completely in sin... But you are supposed to be different than the world. You're supposed to act differently. You're supposed to trust differently. You're supposed to believe differently. And that same call is on us. We may not have emperor worship, but, but man, there's some similar pulls in our life. Pulls on our time. And if you think about it, it's incredibly convenient to bend your faith just a little bit to have a sense of success. You know, I used to be in the business community. I've told this story before. Somebody told me yesterday, she goes, you've told this story. I don't think I've told it to this rendition of the church. But I was in the business world for years before I went to the pastorate. And I used to work for a major uh, heavy equipment manufacturer who likes to paint all their stuff yellow. And in the old days, and my gut tells me it can't still be today, after everything that's gone on in the last decade. But in the old days, there was a way to do business. We all knew it. The company was located in a city in central Illinois that was known for strip clubs. Like it was like world I didn't know strip clubs were 
And in this city, to get anything close, to close a deal, that's where you went. That's where you went. And that culture started to, to spread out across the entire corporation. Now, I was never based in that city. I was based in Chicago. I was based in Atlanta. But the rule of thumb was always the same. If you wanted to close a deal or a business, a deal with a dealership, that's where you went. And it didn't matter if you were male or female, that's where you went. Because that's how they did things. So as a follower of Jesus, what do you do in a situation like that? When your conscience and your faith tells you you really shouldn't be involved in stuff like that. But on the other hand, what's, you know, I'm sure Jesus wants to be successful. See, those same temptations are all around us. And I kind of lucked out. I never, I left the business world to go into the pastorate before that really became a decision that I had to make. I was really good at avoiding it. It never got to a point where it was detrimental. But we all live in the world. We all have those exact same things that come before us. How do we know what to do? How do we know? How do we know we're actually following Christ or not? Paul has a really interesting way of looking at this in his letter to Galatians. I'm going to try to get through this really quick. Galatians 5, verse 13. Paul says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entirety of the, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. This is really interesting if you think about it. Because the picture that he puts out there is simple. You're supposed to be serving one another, not biting and devouring one another. That picture of biting and devouring one another, that's a picture of division in the church. Now, Paul's going to put out this list. We know this list, right? This is like the do not do list. What causes those divisions? The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hated, discord, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've heard this list, we know this list, and we really like to focus on a couple of things on this list, right? Sexual immoral, immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness, orgies. We like to focus on those things. And we have no problem telling people who are involved in those things that they're not going to inherit the kingdom. They're all going to go to hell. We're comfortable with that. But what we miss is the middle part of the list that we don't like to focus on. The ones that we pretend aren't there. Hatred. You know what discord is? It's not just this cool thing that you get to chat on the internet with, all right? Discord means disagreements. 
We have disagreements with one another. Jealousy, when we're jealous of each other. Fits of rage. You can't just mark that off as, you know, holy anger. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. Good Lord, that sounds like the church. You know, if we search our lives, if we really search our lives on those things, how many of those items are sitting in our hearts, are sitting in our lives? And for many of us in the church, our lives are defined by some of those things. To the point where we can even be proud of them. No one's going to take anything out of me. I'll take them out. But Paul tells us that our lives should be defined by something else. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. I want you to think about for a second about what fruit is. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit is not the things that you do. Fruit is what comes out of your lives. They, they, they come out of us naturally. They're the fruit of the actions that we do. So it's not a call to try to love one another, but if we live in such a way, love floats out of us. Think about trees. Trees don't try to grow fruit. Fruit just happens. Because they're certain trees. If we're following Jesus, if He's still our first love, if we're not compromising our faith by the demands of the outside world, then we should be seeing some of that fruit in our lives. Some of it. So the call that Christ gave to the church, the call that Christ is giving to us is by walking in faith, walking in integrity, we should see some of that. That, that integrity, that faith should be in everything we do, in our business, in our family, in our times of relaxation. Our faith should be leading us, not something else. Remember last summer when we were in the epistles of John, what did we discover? The world tells us that the ends justify the means, but, but following Jesus, the means are more important. What we do is more important than where we end up. Sometimes it feels like for years we've been told it's okay to operate in the ways of the world so that we can get ahead, so that the church can get ahead, so that we can have more influence and more power. But what do we lose when we do that? But this isn't a call to change the world. This is a call to change us. And so as we go, I think it's time for some self-reflection. As we look at our lives as individuals, or corporately as the church, what fruit do we see? What are we known as by those who are around us? That's a scary question. People who are around you day in, day out, what do they see in What do they see in this place? Is it about what we hate? Is it about what we disagree about? 
Is it about our jealousy and envy of others? What they have? Are we known for our, our fits of rage? For our anger? For our ambition? Do we like to stir up a little dissension? Are we known for something else? Are we known for our love? Are we known for joy? Are we known as a people of peace? Are we known for our patience? Are we kind and good to others? Are we faithful? And that means, is our yes our yes and our no our no? Are we gentle? Are we self-controlled? These aren't things we do. These are things that we are. And if we're not these things, then something is definitely wrong. Something is missing in our lives. And there's only one way to become these things, and that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to invite Him into our lives. We need to ask forgiveness for the areas that we've held back from God. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. Three things. We need to invite. We need to ask. That's the call to us to become the people in the church that Jesus 